Conversations. Welcome to another episode of Med Conversations. This is Scott. Hey Scott, and it's Beck here too. Thanks everyone for tuning in again. Today we're talking about primary biliary cholangitis and as is our intention quite often, we're hoping that this is going to be a quick one. Yeah, so Beck's getting into a physician exam study, so we've picked quite a specific topic this week. But there's definitely, this is a very common topic in MCQ land, so just try and get it straight in your head a bit about primary biliary cholangitis. Which used to be called primary biliary cirrhosis. She's changed her name, she's got married. It's like that thing where you're scrolling through your Facebook page and you can't quite recognise who that person is. Um, So maiden name cirrhosis, but now it's called primary biliary cholangitis. And the case is little middle-aged Betty. So I'll tell you about Betty. So this is a 40-year-old woman who presents the rheumatology clinic for annual review of her Sjogren's disease. She walks into the consulting room, takes off the gloves that she wears to ward off Raynaud's phenomenon, and absentmindedly starts to scratch her arm. Mm, how mysterious. How mysterious. Go on. So her dry eyes and mouth, sicker, have been going just fine, she tells you, but she's been feeling really tired. It's crazy, she says. I just got back from a month of holidays. I shouldn't be tired. You'd notice that she's looking fairly sun-kissed and inquire about whether she'd spent some time on the beach in Fiji. She laughs and tells you that actually she's been in Montreal in winter and hasn't seen the sun for a month. Mm, The plot thickens. Throughout this conversation, Betty keeps scratching herself. (laughs) Scabies? Yeah, I think scabies is what we're going for. So what are you concerned about? So this is your classic kind of MCQ presentation of primary biliary cholangitis. So you've got a middle-aged lady with Shogun syndrome, complaining, presenting with fatigue and itch, with also skin hyperpigmentation. And obviously in real life, things are more complicated than this. But if you hear those things in MCQ lands, that is primary biliary cholangitis. Great. So in this episode, we're going to talk a little bit about the pathophysiology, epidemiology, disease associations. And that's really where the money is in terms of exams. And then in terms of real life doctoring, a little bit more about the clinical presentation, treatment, and, and just in general ways to differentiate this from a couple of other diseases that um, PBC shares some distinct characteristics with. Yeah, so, so at the end, we'll talk just a little bit about primary sclerosing cholangitis and autoimmune hepatitis, just to kind of get them clear in your head. Hmm. So, so what actually is PBC, primary biliary cholangitis? So I know it's a chronic cholestatic liver disease. And I'm not sure how well the pathophysiology is actually completely understood, Beck, but maybe yeah. you can fill me in with your big studying brain. So, so this is another one of those great ones where it's not just me who doesn't fully understand the pathophysiology, but in general, the medical community does not fully understand the pathophysiology. The things that we do know are that it affects the small intralobular bile ducts. So I've named this I've named this case Little Middle-Aged Betty, and that's for a reason. So I want you to remember Little Betty, Little Bile Ducts, Small Intralobular Bile Ducts. We think that it's an autoimmune disease mediated by T-cells, but that the jury's still a bit out on that one. It's associated with anti-mitochondrial antibodies, and that's 98% specific. So if you see somebody with positive AMA, pretty much they have PBC. If you're going to remember one thing from this podcast, anti-mitochondrial antibody equals PBC. 
in yep. MCQ lands. And we will continue to repeat that until it's fully hammered in. Yeah. Um, ANA is another anti-nuclear antibodies, another common one. And these antibodies aren't actually pathogenic in that they don't actually cause the disease, but there's a strong association there. A couple of other things in the fine print, it's a necrotizing inflammatory process of the portal tract. So you're going to see some white cells there. The small wild ducts, small, again, emphasizing that, are destroyed by the rogue T cells. In early disease, there's fibrosis, some bile stasis, and in the end, the bile ducts actually disappear and you get cirrhosis. So they get completely hammered away. So again, the main things are small bile ducts, AMA, and one last thing, the immunoglobulin that's associated with this is IgM. So I find that easy to remember because IgM has an M in it and AMA has an M in it. So they go together. Good one. So who actually gets primary biliary cholangitis? What's the patient Yeah, so it's population? 95% women, mm. um, usually 30 to 65 years old. And Beck, is there a genetic component? Yeah, we think that there might be. We, you know, me and the other experts on uh, PVC. <laughs> yeah, um, we do. We do believe there is. There's a there's a hundredfold increase um, in risk of getting PVC if you've got a first degree relative with it. But I think again, the key bit here is this is a disease of middle aged women. So again, we said the the case with little middle aged Betty. So middle aged women, disease associations. This case has Sjogren's disease. Is that classic? Yeah, so 65 to 80% of people with PBC have Sjogren's disease. Yeah. And then apart from that, you've got your normal kind of autoimmune links to some other diseases. So you've got thyroid disease in 10 to 15% of patients with PBC, uh, limited cutaneous scleroderma in 5 to 15%, and classic rheumatoid arthritis, 5 to 10%. Mm, yeah. So the in, in exam questions, they'll almost always have Sjogren's disease, which can make it a really easy spot diagnosis. In reality, though, the prevalence of PBC is actually very low. It's about five in every 100,000 people in Australia. Yeah, that's pretty low. And it's probably about 99 in 100 of exam questions. Okay, so we go back to Betty again, little middle-aged Betty, and, and do a quick examination. So she looks pretty well. She's vitally stable. But she is hyperpigmented, mostly on her trunks, her trunk and her arms. So she sort of looks like she's got a tan, not jaundiced as such, and her eyes look all right, but she just looks a bit darker. Okay, and that's important because, um, as Beck was saying, they don't always present with jaundice. Often they don't have jaundice. Mm. So you do a bit of a search for other signs of chronic liver disease. You've recently listened to the Med Conversations episode on the topic and you know exactly what to do. Um, she doesn't have any hepatomegaly, no splenomegaly, no ascites, no edema. It's all pretty boring. You have a look for xanthelasma and xanthomata, which are cholesterol deposits. I've still never seen tendon xanthomata. Have you? Oh, I don't think I have, actually. Do you, do you guys know the easy way to remember xanthelasma? No. Xanthelasma is in your eyes because it's lasers. Xanthelasma. Xanthomata oh, like is on your tendons. Yeah. Or if you spell it incorrectly and say xanthalesma, it kind of sounds like xanthalizma. Xanthalizma. No, no, okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, Let's go with lasers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. lasers. Eyes. <laughs> um, okay, so so now we're we're looking at um, some blood tests. So you just order a basic panel blood test. She, you get them back instantly, as always happens in the um, public healthcare system, and her FBE is normal with a little bit of eosinophilia. She has some LFTs ordered, 
and you're relieved to see that her bilirubin is actually normal. So you were right, she, she wasn't jaundiced, but her LFTs are a little bit deranged. So Scott, if I tell you that she has a, an ALP, alkaline phosphatase, twice the upper limit of normal, and a raised GGT, are you thinking that this sounds more cholestatic or intrahepatic? Well, they're classically your two more cholestatic LF, um, elements of your LFT panel, so I'd say it's more cholestatic. Mm. Although, of course, in real life, often you'll get quite a mixed picture. Yeah, yeah. So, so in this patient as well, her transaminases, which is her AST and her ALT, are both up a little bit as well, but not very much. You order a liver ultrasound and a bunch of other blood tests. So liver ultrasound number one, what are you, what are you looking for here? What do you want to rule out? Yeah, so it's really important here with this kind of painless jaundice to rule out an extra hepatic biliary obstruction, so something like a malignancy or a gallstone. Mm. And other tests apart from liver ultrasound you could do would be an MRCP or an ERCP. Yeah, exactly. So she has that done and there's no evidence of any extra hepatic biliary obstruction. It all looks pretty normal. I said that we'd add on a couple of tests and, and here this is a bit of revision again when we said there's only one thing we want you to take out of this podcast and that's the autoimmune marker that is raised in PBC. So which one is it? It's AMA, antimitochondrial antibody. So as we said, elevated in over 96, 97% of the patients. Yeah. And also very specific as well. ANA is also raised in about 70% of people and Betty is positive for both AMA and ANA. So I think that brings us to the point where now we need to start having a bit of a chat about what the what the different differentials are for this kind of thing. So for for somebody who has a cholestatic picture of her LFT of their LFTs, um, what are you what are you thinking about? And there's a quite a long list here. I think what we need to start with is, as always, what's really bad, and then look at what's common. So firstly, what's really bad? Cancer is usually the answer to that question. Um, we're just going to go through a few really straightforward things to remember if you're a medical student. So painless jaundice. So cancer until, or malignancy until proven otherwise. These are just some kind of general statements that, you know, sometimes wrong, but usually pretty good guides. So painless jaundice is cancer until proven otherwise. And if, you, if there's pain there, you're thinking more of gallstones or cholidocolithiasis. Yeah, exactly. Um, or if you have fever, right upper quadrant pain and jaundice, you're thinking more in ascending cholangitis. So Betty doesn't really have any of these things, but it's good to think in the back of your mind. Drugs can cause anything. So in this case, drugs that can cause a cholestatic picture on your liver function test, the key ones here are some antibiotics like doxycycline or Bactrim, which is sulfamethoxazole mixed with trimethoprim. Ibuprofen, and then there was one of the antipsychotics. Chlorpromazine. Chlorpromazine. But there's also yeah. a lot of other drugs that can sometimes cause this picture. It's a really good idea, like if someone has kind of a cholestatic picture or even any kind of liver disease, to look up the drugs that this patient is using, particularly if they've just been started, although it can be quite a few weeks or months after starting a drug, and just see if there's any drugs that have that side effect. Yeah, and I think that that's something that I, I almost wish somebody said to me when I was in, in medical school, and I thought that everyone just knew all of this but it's really important that that you understand that you can always look all this stuff up and i i definitely still sit down i look through the australian medical handbook or mims and look up everything that a patient is on if you're worried that one of their drugs could be contributing to a clinical presentation that has you scratching your head a little bit yeah you don't have to come up with every diagnosis on the ward rounds no. doctors can use seats as well and like time 
to wow. have their diagnostic abilities. Yeah, we're Doctors allowed. Doctors can sit down. Can they eat? Mm, that one's kind of, the jury's still out on that one. Mm. All right, so a couple of the other differentials are a bit trickier to tell the difference between, and um, that's partly because sometimes it's not one or the other. You can get a bit of an overlap syndrome. So now we're going to talk a bit about how to tell the difference between primary biliary cirrhosis, or sorry, primary biliary cholangitis, as it's now called, so PBC, telling the difference between that and primary sclerosing cholangitis and autoimmune hepatitis. So in terms of tests for PBC, as um, we've been reinforcing, you've got your IgM is raised and your anti-mitochondrial antibody is your really good test. For PSC, primary, primary sclerosing cholangitis, you've got your IgG raised and P anchor is also characteristic, remembering that um, it is also found in other things. As is IgG. So the really specific stuff is with the PBC. Yeah, so the AMA is really kind of your, your A plus or some tests that makes our job a little bit easier. Um, so moving on with the autoimmune hepatitis, your other um, tests are your ANA, anti-smooth muscle antibody, anti-SLA-LP, and your anti-LK microsome 1. <laughs> Ordered that so, a lot of times. So uh, so th- these are just some of the ones for the different subtypes of autoimmune hepatitis. Really, it doesn't matter. Anti-LK stands for anti-liver kidney, so that's at least easy to remember. Um, and that's another IgG one. So PBC, IgM, AMA, and then the others do different stuff. Great. And so the next one is gender. So as we've reinforced, so PBC, you're thinking women, 95% was it, bet? Yeah. Um, PSC is more common in men. And autoimmune hepatitis has a predilection for women, but it's it's sort of not that not that strong. So about 60% of people with autoimmune hepatitis are women. Yeah, so your next real MCQ thing is um, PBC, think Sjogren's. Um, P, primary sclerosing cholangitis is really linked to inflammatory bowel disease, especially ulcerative colitis. Yeah, so basically um, about 80% of people who have PSC have ulcerative colitis. But if you've got ulcerative colitis, you don't have to sit there sort of waiting for the PSC to come on. Most people don't ever get it, but of those who do have PSC, most have ulcerative chloride. Um, pretty lucky ulcer- people, hey? Ulcerative chloritis, is that it? Ulcerative cl- I'm pretty <laughs> sure that's correct. Ulcerative chloritis related to chlorine consumption. You heard it here. Yeah. <laughs> so you find it helpful, right, if, if we just make up medical conditions while we're teaching you? Yeah, okay, good. All right, so the next thing that we need to know the differences between um, PBC and PSE is the size of the ducts. I had this great joke going about ducklings and geese. Apparently, it's not going to work. So we're going to call them ducts rather than ducks and just keep it boring here. The, <laughs> the size of the ducts affected in PBC, is that big or small? So PBC, little betty, small ducts. Little betty, little ducts. That's it. And sometimes they have granulomas as well. In PSC... It tends to affect the bigger ducts. Sometimes it can affect different sized ones as well, but the, the clear, straightforward, classic one is large ducts. And you get something called onion skin fibrosis as well, which I think Tony Abbott is particularly into. <laughs> and on the ERCP, you can see beading. Do you know what beading is? I think you get like a sequence of strictures that look like little beads. Is that? Yeah, kind of. So if you imagine if you've got, you've got this tube, the, the biliary duct, and along the length of it, there's strictures, so it's sort of squeezing in. So the bits in between it look like beads, beads on a chain or something like that. So 
PBC, small ducts, PSC, large ducts, onion skin fibrosis, beading. So I don't know if you want to picture some kind of mental image, Tony Abbott wearing a... <laughs> Wearing a necklace of beads while biting into an onion. Yeah, with not that skin. we would, not that we would hope that Tony Abbott gets primary sclerosis and cholangitis. No, that's an important. At least disclaimer. not explicitly. We would never hope or wish that. But just maybe he can help us to learn about the condition. All right, we're going to really quickly move on now. Um, PBC. Can you treat it? You can. You can. Excellent. So we're going to talk about this more in a little bit. Um, but the mainstay of medical treatment is ursodeoxycholic acid and it responds quite well to that you can give it to people in psc as well because it improves their lfts but it doesn't really do much else so it's um it's not something that you would be examined on i wouldn't believe because we don't know if it really has much of an impact on the clinical course and we think that um ursodeoxycholic acid probably doesn't impact mortality of psc either so to simplify that, we'll say PBC responds to ursodeoxycholic acid, PSC doesn't. Autoimmune hepatitis also doesn't. And you actually need to bring in the big guns there and treat those people with glucocorticoids and immunosuppression with something like azathioprine. So that's kind of the, I guess, the, the broad strokes of how to tell the difference between PBC, PSC and autoimmune hepatitis. And I'm sorry, I know that's really dry, yeah, um, it's a bit of a dry topic today. We're just dragging ourselves through this. But hopefully you're doing something fun at the same time. <laughs> maybe you're at the gym, maybe you're going for a walk. There's something more interesting than the podcast going on. and can, you can Just let these facts kind of absorb into your head. Yeah, can you actually tell us what you're doing when you're listening to these? I'm really, <laughs> I'm really curious. Um, okay, so differentials. We got through most of that list before, but I just want to... Give a quick shout out to some other conditions that that Betty, this middle-aged lady with the with the um, cholestatic picture on her LFTs, might have. Um, I'm just going to really just list them off. So, firstly, viral hepatitis. I don't think we mentioned. I think it's just always something you've got to think about. Hepatitis A, B, C. Pick a letter. Into the weeds a little bit more. IgG4 related related disease. If you're not a basic physician trainee. Don't listen to this bit, but basically it's a fibro-inflammatory condition that can affect any organ system and most commonly presents with pancreatitis. Speaking of systemic things, Scott, um, can you think of anything else? The sarcoidosis. If you listen to the other podcasts on that, you'll know you'll be a resident expert. Yeah. Um, some other rare, uh, rarer causes are bacterial, fungal or viral infections, hepatic amyloidosis, lymphoma, solid organ malignancies endocrine dysfunction or cardiac diseases but we're getting to pretty rare causes and just to kind of re-summarize the top causes we were talking about you've got these autoimmune conditions that we're talking about the pbc the psc the autoimmune hepatitis you've got your viral hepatitis you've got your drug reactions and you've got your bile duct obstruction from something like a malignancy or a gallstone sounds good what should be on your head a good a good summary what should be on your head even (laughs) in your head (laughs) yeah so you're ready when the consultant drills you just they're on your head yeah. Ready to go. Just just remove it when you need. Yeah. Okay. So so now we've talked a lot about differentials. Let's talk about the diagnosis of actual PBC, primary biliary cholangitis. So there's three diagnostic criteria and you need two of three of them to get the diagnosis. That's not really that important to remember specifically, but knowing what the criteria are is helpful. So the first one's about the ALP. Does that need to be high, low? Yeah. So criteria one, 
the ALP has to be at least 1.5 times the upper limit of normal. Okay, so Betty has that tick. Um, the second one, presence of anti-mitochondrial antibodies, AMA. Got a titer of 1 to 40 or higher. Yeah, so it's got to be strongly enough positive. And again, that's the main thing we want you to get out of this today. AMA equals PBC. Very specific. And the third criterion is histologic evidence of PBC. So as we talked about before, it's destruction of those small interlobular bile ducts and it's a non-separative destructive cholangitis. So in order to know what's going on on a histological kind of level, you need to do a biopsy. If a patient has satisfied criteria one and two, you don't need to satisfy criteria three. So in Betty's case, we tick the box for the high ALP, we tick the box for the AMA, so we don't need to tick that third box and do a liver biopsy. In practice though, often a liver biopsy is done anyway. And um, here's something that I just found really, really interesting. I just thought we'd talk a little bit about the complications of primary biliary cholangitis and, um, and what, what kind of things you need to screen for. Do you know what it can lead to? So, I mean, the most obvious complication would be um, cirrhosis. Um, yeah. You can also get hepatocellular carcinoma. And then there's some more kind of interesting ones, like you can get metabolic bone disease. Mm. You can also get malabsorption. You can get a fat-soluble vitamin deficiency and steatorrhea. Yeah, and those two things are a little bit related because the fat-soluble vitamins is the ADEC vitamins, so A, D, E, and K. And so vitamin D deficiency can cause some issues with um, calcium phosphate metabolism. The last one, we mentioned looking for xanthelasma, xanthomata, and that's because you can get hyperlipidemia, um, and all the different kinds of cholesterol tend to be raised, including the good cholesterols. So interestingly, patients who have the high cholesterol from um, PBC tend to not be at any increased risk of death from atherosclerosis because their HDL, the good cholesterol, is up. Well, we don't know if that's the reason, but that's that's kind of the, yeah. the working theory. So PBC is associated with other autoimmune conditions, so you've got to screen for those. So what you would generally do for patients who have this is an annual TSH to make sure their thyroid's ticking along okay, check their lipids, do a DEXA scan twice a year, and make sure that their vitamin D is, um, is replete. Replete, good word. I love that word, yeah. yeah. It used to be one of my favorite cafes. <laughs> really good smashed avocado. <laughs> All right, so what's little middle-aged Betty's results back? So she's pretty lucky. She's actually looking not too bad. Normal TSH, normal vitamin D, normal bone scans. Her cholesterol is way off, but we can treat that. So moving on to treatment in general, what do you do for PBC? So as we talked about before, ursodeoxycholic acid is the most important treatment. It improves LFTs, reduces disease progression, and gives you improved transplant-free survival as well. Yeah, so that's really important. It... Um, it does help with the overall picture of things. Does it help with their itch or fatigue? I don't think people are very sure, but probably not. Yeah, yeah. probably not. So we're going to... Itch is a pretty predominant and irritating um, symptom. So we're going to give her some emollient creams. We might give cholestyramine, which is a bile acid binding resin that we often use to treat hyperlipidemia. But it also helps with that itch. One key thing to remember here is that you shouldn't take these two medications, cholestyramine and ursodeoxycholic acid, together at the same time of day because they actually bind to each other and it means that they don't get the full effect of, 
of either drug. Yeah. Um, so just give them at different times of day. And you should also treat the hypercholesterolemia. Yeah. So ursodeoxycholic acid for everyone and otherwise just treat with supportive management. So what happened to Betty? Well, she came back in, sadly, with decompensated liver cirrhosis. So the only definitive treatment for that is liver transplant. Another med conversations casualty there. But actually, it's just a joke, a hilarious joke that we put in because med conversations people never die. They're fine. She was fine. So starting the ursodeoxycholic acid early confers a better prognosis and Betty was totally fine, needed to take a bit of extra cetirizine to help with that itch and she uh, trucked on okay. But now you know that if she did have decompensated cirrhosis, secondary to PBC, she would get a liver transplant. So we've got a learning point in there anyway. Yeah. That brings us to the end. Um, I guess the main things to recap here are that the kind of people who get um, PBC are people like little middle-aged Betty, so middle-aged ladies. They tend to present with itch and fatigue and a raised ALP. Yeah, and it's also um, PBC is associated with Sjogren's disease as opposed to the PSC, which was with the ulcerative colitis. They tend to be AMA positive, and that's a really good test with 98% specificity. And for the BPTs out there studying for your exams, PBC affects the small ducts and is associated with IgM, as opposed to PSC, which affects large ducts, and autoimmune hepatitis and PSC, which are associated with IgG. The complications are cirrhosis, metabolic bone disease, malabsorption, and hyperlipidemia, and all of those things are pretty easily treatable. So all in all, it's a disease that's worth looking out for. It's very rare, but if you, if you catch it, you can treat it quite effectively. Yeah, so uh, you may not see this many times, but it's definitely a big multiple choice question. So whatever exams are coming up, it's a good, th- good thing to keep in your head and get it straight from the other um, liver diseases going around. Thanks for listening. Give us a shout out on Facebook, um, the page is Med Conversations, or Twitter, the page is Med Conversation. Cost extra for the S. Yeah. And also send us a message. Yeah, we're very happy. We really love hearing from you. So thank you to everyone who sent us messages over the last few weeks. It's what keeps us going. Thanks. Bye.